For your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Drama Series in all other categories, the HBO Emmy-winning original series In Treatment takes place 10 years after the season three finale, returning for its fourth season with Emmy winner Uzo Aduba as the observant, empathetic Dr. Brooke Taylor, the therapist at the center of the season. The reimagining of the series is set in present-day Los Angeles and brings a diverse trio of patients in session with Brooke to help navigate a variety of modern concerns. Issues such as the global pandemic and recent major social and cultural shifts are the backdrop to the work Brooke will undertake, all while she deals with complications in her own personal life. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. here today with documentary filmmaker R.J. Cutler, who is behind Apple TV Plus's Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry, and their Dear series, as well as Showtime's Belushi Doc. Give it a listen. What really bowled me over with The the World's a Little Blurry is, uh, is I was just so fascinated how you captured uh, Billie Eilish's and Phineas's process. Mm. I mean, I think she's an amazing artist, wise beyond her years. She's not even 20 yet. And it's like everything seems, tell me about that. Tell me about coming on board to the project because you were on very, you, you, you've captured her straight in the zenith of her career and also did her process impact you as much as it did me just how they do everything you know her sound sounds like it's something that comes straight out of a recording studio with a thousand engineers and it's just her and Phineas in their in the bedroom well yeah I mean you're you're touching on so many things that all kind of tie together in in the the complexity of the film. Um, they're remarkably talented, and uh, and they're remark and they're and they're prodigies. They're both prodigies. Um, they have a uh, they speak a secret language that I recognize a little from my own children, uh, the the language of siblings, but they speak it in, in on a musical plane. Um, they, uh, Phineas is, uh, you know, uh, uh, as, as, as brilliant a producer, uh, working with the absolute cutting edge of technological resources as there exists in the world. Um, they're documentarians of their own life experience, uh, poets of their moment. Uh, Billy is, uh, uh, is able to capture, uh, the emotional essence and then narrative essence of what it's like to be Billy <clears throat> and, um, and communicate that in song and in performance. So there's all of that. Um, it was clear to me that from the moment I met her that um, the proper way to make a film about her was, was to make a verite film, one that was as... Um, 
as as honest and as she um, that that the that the form could could match the content and also that I was being presented with an opportunity not only to tell the story of a, an extraordinary artist coming of age, but also to tell the story of an extraordinary young woman coming of age. And this was a very, I mean, that's a, that's a time of life that's always interesting to me. I've done a lot of work with young people, you know, who are crossing the bridge between childhood and adulthood. I think it's a very rich landscape for storytelling. Um, and and it, in so many ways, uh, the, 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 the coming of age story of a young woman serves as a metaphor for what it's like to be an artist and the coming of age uh, of, a, of an artist uh, serves as, has so much metaphorical value for what it's like to, uh, to be a young woman coming of age. So, so there was great resonance and your questions kind of, um, I think, you know, recognize all of that. Uh, and that's, that's really a lot of what the movie is about. Now, when it comes to making a movie, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, about a, a, a performer, you know, a, a musician, a performer, there's always this notion with the estate or whoever you're making the subject of, of boundaries that are set. They, you know, in the case of Queen, uh, they would not they would not make the Sasha Baron Cohen warts all story and that he wanted. And therefore there was no way if Sasha was ever going to make that movie, he was ever gonna get access to the music. Uh, and um, I have my own suspicions about the Amy documentary. Uh, but what my question is, is when you went to make a movie about her, I get the sense that they weren't holding back anything. They seem like we are who we are. Can you talk about that? Was there, were there any fences put up? Like, no, 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 we need to turn off the camera now because I wanna say in even certain instances, sorry, I have these questions and a question. I wanna say you were using a, a hidden camera in the room just to kind of capture, you know, just to kind of capture the nature of things as, as they unfolded. Uh, yeah, um, no, we, we never, we would never hide a camera. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I, it's, that's not my, my approach. Um, my subjects are, are, are willing subjects who are fully aware when we're filming and, you know, we, uh, and trust us and trust is the essence of what your, all of these questions are about, but it's, there's a, there, there, there is one conversation that I have about what you're referring to as boundaries. And it's a conversation I have with all of my subjects the day I meet them, because I, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to, to, you know, proceed under, uh, under any other awareness. I need final cut. I need final cut when I make my films. And I don't, I, 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 I don't want to work on a film for, you know, shoot a film for a year and edit a film for a year and then spend a year, uh, uh, you know, getting the film out into the world and, and not have it taken seriously, not be able to say, when you ask me, uh, what, were, what, did, what did they not allow us to see? The answer is nothing. They, they, there's nothing that they stopped me from seeing. 
Um, and there's nothing that they stopped me from including in the film because they didn't have the right. I had final cut. It's not only did we discuss it, not only did we look each other in the eyes and, and agree to it, but it's in a contract. And that, and, and now I, I, my relationship with them transcends contractual boundaries. It's a relationship built on trust. It's a relationship that honors the fact that this is their life and that this is their life story. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, you know, if there were, if there were a hundred, if there were a hundred thousand, uh, uh, you know, minutes in the year that I filmed, however many minutes in a year. Uh, I, this film is not that long. It's not a year long movie. There's selections are made, choices are made, but I included every single frame that I wanted to and every decision was, was up to me. Now, now again, I, I, I'm, I'm filming in a verite environment. I want my subjects to be open and trusting. And I always say to my crew, let, let's let's stop shooting 10 minutes before they wish we would leave. You know, let's leave before they wish we would leave because I'd like them to be happy to see us the next time and the next time and the next time and the next time because each time you each shoot you have with your subject is the deepening of a personal relationship built on trust. And I want that relationship to go as deep as it can possibly go so that by the end of the shooting process, things are being revealed that one might never have imagined would be revealed. And so this is how, you know, I've, I've, I've been doing it a long time. I was in the, the incredibly blessed uh, recipient of an education in this from D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges, who directed the first film I produced, The War Room. I learned all about this from them. And, and the principles that they taught me is, have stood the test of time. If you can earn your subject's trust, if you can be who you say you're going to be, if you honor the fact that the story belongs to them, not to you, if you don't want anything from them, but to see the truth, then good things will come. That's brilliant. How, how much time did you have with her? Oh, we, uh, I think we filmed something like 120 days over the course of a year. And then we had access to the family's archive, which includes the footage you're talking about that appeared to you to, you know, uh, uh, the GoPro they hung in the room when they were writing. That's, you know, that's all them or, or the, the, the hard drives worth of personal footage that, that Maggie shot on her iPhone and would call me and say, I've got another month's worth of footage. We'd send someone over to pick up a hard drive and we'd wow. send it over and then we'd give her a fresh hard drive for the next month. And she didn't have to give me that footage, but she trusted me and she wanted me to have it. Or the day that I was driving in uh, with Billy and, and she said, oh my God, you gotta see this thing I found last night. I was looking through my old videos and they, here, here I am instructing the director of when the party's over video and how he's supposed to do it. And you won't believe it, mom, mom sat in for me while I kind of directed the whole thing for him. Well, that, that footage is fundamental to the film's success because you see it very early on and you realize, my God, this 16 year old child is, is a genius. She's a visionary and she's incredibly certain about what she wants and she's specific and she's articulate and she's got a sense of humor and a big heart. And let's see where that goes. Well, 
that's a whole narrative through line in the film that culminates in her directing her own videos in the final sequence. So um, it, it, it's all, as I say, it's all part of this very organic process that um, you commit to the principles of in order to, uh, in order to achieve good things. And it's, you know, listen, it's, it's not easy because a lot of days you're not getting anything and it doesn't change. You can't change. You can't suddenly need something or want something. It's not about me. It's not about me. <laughs> so it's organic and as it comes. It's, it's we, we, you know, my favorite, my favorite uh, story that explains our process comes from, comes from the great Wayne Gretzky, the hockey legend who, you know, they called the great one who may have been one of the greatest athletes to ever live. And he rarely gave interviews, but one day I saw him interviewed and, and the, the interviewer said, tell us great one, what is your secret? How do you do what you do? And, and Gretzky said, well, it's, it's quite simple. I, I just follow the puck. And, and I was like, what? <laughs> Everybody on a hockey rink is, is skating around trying to get the puck to do what they want it to do. But Gretzky lets the puck lead him. Well, that's, the, that's what we do. We let the story lead us. We let the, Billy's life lead us. We're not trying to get it somewhere. That's why I don't do interviews. Interviews are all about what I want her to talk about. Doesn't matter what I want her to talk about. What matters is what she's talking about. What matters is what's, what she's thinking, feeling, experiencing in the moment. And that's how you come to these moments of, you know, because, you know, she, she writes of heartbreak and, and things like that. And then we see at a certain point that there, we, we hear of a boyfriend and we hear of a relationship that isn't going well, mm -hmm. which, is, which was very interesting. And then toward the end, we learned that, um, you know, her revelation with hiding razor blades and, and, and cutting, all of this, just as you say, just came, just, it, it just came, it came toward, did it come as we see it in the film toward the middle of the shoot, toward the end of the shoot? Is that how you just, those, those moments came to you? Well, the film, the film is, um, uh, I'm going to say uh, with, with exceptions that prove the rule entirely in chronological order. This one, you know, I don't, I don't think films have to be in chronological order, but this film happens to be entirely in chronological order. Um, were there any questions that you had remaining about her after you had finished that were left unanswered? Uh, I mean, I think, um, and not within this narrative, this is a complete narrative that I find deeply satisfying. Um, but uh, I, I, I have questions I suspect you have as well. And they sound something like, what will the future hold for Billie Eilish? What, what will she bring us next? Where, where does this remarkable career go? What, what, how does a, a, a prodigy of her nature um, uh, withstand modern uh, you know, issues surrounding fame, social media? How much... How long will she want this? How long will it be satisfying? How will she grow as an artist? How will she change? What will the dynamic with Phineas continue to be? But they're all about the future. They're not, uh, it's why we end the movie with a song called My Future, 
Um, and and uh, uh, it's a very optimistic song. It's a very self-empowered song. Uh, and it's and it's a beautiful song. And I believe that's where we left Billy. But in the year that we tell her story, I, I feel we've told it very completely. And again, the other thing that bowled me over was just how down to earth and grounded her parents were. They yeah. weren't these, you know, mom and pop managers. Uh, they weren't, it wasn't um, like Brian Wilson's dad and, you know, the, the notorious stories you hear about him and with the Beach Boys. It was just, they were very organic and very nurturing and very um, just making it a comfortable environment for both her and Phineas to thrive in. Yeah. Well, um, did that, did that, did that impact you? Did that hit you over the head as well as it did me? Oh, sure. And, and, you know, I, I've got, I've got three young kids. I've got a six-year-old, a three-year-old and a newborn. So, so parenting is, uh, is very much on my mind. And, and uh, you know, like, as you can imagine, you develop deep personal relationships in making these films. And I'd spend hours talking with Maggie and Patrick about parenting and the challenges and the philosophy and the approach. And, um, and, and they, they pursued a, a, a parenting approach that they believed very much in, that they felt was right for their kids. Um, and that evolved over time as they got to know their kids uh, better and better. And as their kids formed, uh, they were, uh, they, they, they let the kids creativity lead. It was clearly very, uh, a, a very successful approach for Billy and Phineas and, and the results are beautiful and, and, and powerful. Um, and, uh, and they are very much who they are and who you, who you see in the film. And it's, um, I, I find it very moving personally. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very engaged. I think it's, um, and, and Billy speaks to it and there's a re, you know, there's a reason why one of the final things she says in the film, certainly the final thing before Justin Bieber calls her at the end of the film is, uh, is, um, you know, they, they, they did everything they could so that we could be our truest selves. Well, you know, as a dad, if, if, uh, if my kids say that, when they're, you know, at, at any point in their lives, when they're reflecting back on how they were raised, I will, uh, I'll, 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 I'll breathe this uh, a deep sigh of, of relief and gratitude because what more can a parent want for a child than that they say, um, my folks helped me to become my truest self. David, In Treatment on HBO. Serious show. You have to see it. It stars Emmy winner Uzo Aduba as Dr. Brooke Taylor. She is this therapist and she takes it all in. Everything that's on top of our minds right now, the pandemic and social and cultural shifts going on in our lives. It's up for outstanding drama series this Emmy season, as well as all other categories. Was is there anything you could share on her overnight success? Um, in the sense that, yes, it was built by a global social media, but was, and one that, that is, is very pro her, um, obviously, but was there anything like um, her tape fell in the hands of Interscope and, and that's when things started? 
No, because that's not the story. And, and, and with great respect, it's not an overnight success. It's a success that was, was, uh, was built over many years by, you know, she's uh, by a team that Billy chose. Billy chose the people who advise her and Billy leads the people who advise her. No decision is made. And you see this in the film. No decision is made that Billy isn't making. She is in charge now. She's surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in the music industry. And, uh, and, but they, part of their genius over at Interscope and Darkroom is that they recognize that Billy uh, uh, that, th that the best path toward success is, is, is supporting Billy, is letting her lead and, um, and, and trusting her and supporting her vision and doing everything they can to make that vision come true. So they are um, there and, and that's, you know, that's that. And, 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 and they all felt it was wisest to go nice and slowly. So her first album was her first song uh, uh, garnered attention when she was 13 years old, but her first album full length album wasn't released until she was 17 years old. That's a nice slow burn. And she manages her social media and she knows her audience better than any uh, middle-aged music executive or even young music executive. This is her audience. She, her life is determining the pace of social media right now. She's the one who puts uh, a posting up on Instagram and, and, and posting after posting after posting reaches a million likes in record time. Nobody, nobody is doing that with the consistency of Billie Eilish. And it's, a, it's not a studied knowledge. It's an instinctual knowledge because these are, these are her people. These are, this is the moment. Uh, this is her moment. And she's chronicling it not only in her art, but in her life as well, which is to me why she's, you know, Dylan-esque and has the potential, you know, we just celebrated Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think Billy has the potential to serve this role uh, that she's serving uh, uh, for her entire life, if she shows, so chooses. She's a singular artist. She'll make decisions as to how she wants her life and her career to evolve and what her priorities will be, but it's gonna be fascinating. But certainly she has the potential, I believe, to be, have as profound a generational impact um, as someone like Bob Dylan uh, uh, has had. The, um, the one, one last thing about Billy before we, we talk about um, your other projects, her approach with fans, like the early on in the doc, what really impressed me was just how fearless she was in getting up close with them concerts and after the concert. Obviously, as things go on, we see her later in the dock, you know, at the, like Interscope has brought in some guests backstage and she's questioning, who are these people? You know, why do I have to meet them? That's like a standard, I, I get that type of approach, you know, from where she's coming from. But early on, she's fearless about getting close to her fans. That worried me. That worried me because she's such a global phenomenon. She is a prophet to her fans. And there's always, you know, it's celebrity. There's always a loose cannon in the crowd and you never want the two to clash. Was, 
was that going like I'm just wondering how that dawned on you when you saw how close she was with her fans. Well, it's an it you know um, I'll start by saying that Billy's ability to connect with her fans is is fundamental to her success and to the joy she has in uh, in performing and 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 uh, uh, she she meets and greets her fans uh, before every concert. Uh, she uh, she engages with them when circumstances allow on the street. Uh, she wants a connection. She manages a social media following on Instagram of something like 85 million followers on a daily basis. And, and connecting with her audience is incredibly important to her. But as you can imagine, uh, there, were, there are increasing challenges associated with that. Uh, the film doesn't go into the security challenges. Um, it's, a, it's a two hour and 20 minute film and we focused on the narrative through lines that we focused on, but, um, but one might've focused on the security challenges associated with becoming, with being Billie Eilish and becoming increasingly famous. And it's, it's less a question of my concerns, the, of everybody was concerned. Billy con has concerns. Uh, the, the folks around her, she has a security team. She has to. She has. She lives in uh, in in a in a small town, and and it's not hard to figure out where she lives. Not from our film, but from her life on the internet and other things that predate. And people know yeah. her. She's a you know she's a kid in a community, so it's no secret. And and th that raises security issues. There are lots of things. It's it's uh, um, uh, so. Uh, it's it's a question that is being faced and being considered and being thought of, but uh, if 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 she if she couldn't connect in the deep way that she does, I, I think a great deal of the joy that she gets from the experience would be um, would be compromised, and it's it it it's very it's a very important part of um, of of who she is. Um, uh, so I watched the episode, the Lin-Manuel Miranda episode of Dear. The Ripple. And I was crying. Yeah, yeah, very uh, powerful. Really it yeah. really moved me. And I'm so I, glad, thank I, you. I know he's a good guy, but this made me think of him as an even greater guy. And we're talking about connection between artists and, and fans and yes, Ripple. Yes, yes, yeah. Tell I mean, that's about... what Deer, that's what Deer is all about. Deer is about the, the, the way your, your, your work and your deeds can, can impact the world beyond people you even imagine are being impacted by your work and your deeds. And, and this, this leads us to think, you know, in, in fact, one person can change the world because as Lynn says, when you put work out into the world, it's like throwing a pebble into a pond and that pond ripples and ripples and ripples and you have no idea who you're impacting. And one of the, you know, the, the deer features Spike Lee and Stevie Wonder and Oprah Winfrey and Gloria Steinem and, and Ali Reisman and Misty Copeland, Yara Shahidi, there's so many people. Big Bird, well, Big Bird's a puppet, but the rest of them, I dare say, and in fact, even the people who work with Big Bird were so moved making this show, and that I couldn't believe. I did not expect to see Oprah Winfrey sobbing, reading these letters. I'm like, come on, Oprah, 
Have you not read these letters? Well, the answer is no. They don't, people, you know, it doesn't matter how successful, how rich, how powerful, the thing that matters to artists who are putting work out into the world, not just artists, thinkers, philosophers, scientists, the thing that matters to those who put their work out into the world is the connection to others. And in a time of uh, decreasing interpersonal connection, separation through social media, hostility through our national politics, uh, uh, distancing through the uh, crisis of the pandemic. Here was a show that, that, that showed that the simplest connections can have a profound effect and that when you put your work out into the world, when you put your deed out into the world, it can change other people's lives. How did you go about selecting the subjects of the episodes, in particular, when it came to them reading reading letters? Did they did they have to do the like? Well, we 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 had <laughs> yeah. Well, look, we what I just described is what the concept of the show is, and knowing that this was the concept of the show, that we would have people whose lives had been changed by certain by 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 our icon the the work of iconic figures. Um, we would have them reading letters uh, and, and shoot cinematically kind of uh, those letters coming to life. Once we had that concept down, which is the, the, you know, my concept for the show, we, we made a wish list. You know, wouldn't it be awesome? Well, wouldn't it be awesome to have Oprah? She's put a lot of work out into the world, you know, and let's have a musician. Well, if we could get Stevie Wonder, that would be great. And I, I, there has to be a theater artist in there. I'm a, I'm a man of the theater and, and, and no, but nobody's work is kind of more the subject of its impact and how it's changed the world than Lynn Miranda. Let's get Lynn Miranda. And, and I sure would hope there's a, a filmmaker in there, I, maybe Spike Lee will do this. And we made our wish list. And I got to tell you, uh, by and large, everybody said yes and was on board. And, um, you know, and then somebody, our friends at Apple said, maybe we should try Big Bird. Uh, who, who's impacted people's lives more than Big Bird? So we went for it. We, you know, it was a little bit of a non-traditional episode in a series that didn't, it was, was brand new. So the fact that it was non-traditional was we, we recognized the irony, but we went for it. And that's a beautiful episode. And, you know, there's just a lot of, we wanted a young, a young activist. So we, we invited Yara Shahidi to do it. We wanted uh, uh, an artist from a, a, a less traditional, uh, you know, a, like a less pop culture uh, uh, category um, and somebody who had, you know, been a, 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 a had broken through in civil rights, and we asked Misty Copeland to do it. So there you go. Now you have Viola Davis, Selena Gomez, and Jane Fonda for season two. Can you tease anything? Uh, anything? I mean, Jane Fonda. I mean, she's she's epic. You know, I, they're they're all epic, and they're they're, yeah. they're 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 and I can only tell you that um, if if you were moved by season one, as as uh, so many people have told me they have been, uh, and as I was in in making it, and and even in in watching and rewatching it, uh, you'll be equally moved by season two. We do have wonderful uh, new folks, and we hope to be making this series for Apple for you know years and years to come. Now, how did the Belushi documentary come together? I know Tanner, like there, it says at the beginning, Tanner Colby 
was doing um, interviews for an oral history on Belushi. How did, how did these tapes come to you? How did everything get started? Well, it started as a desire to tell John's story, which is something that had uh, never been properly done, um, certainly in the wake of his death. Bob Woodward was granted uh, access to, uh, to the family, archives, records, letters, all those things. Um, but he, when he wrote Wired, uh, John's family and the people in his life were very disappointed. They felt that Bob had, um, had, 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 you know, come up with a thesis and then set out to prove it at all costs, which is, you know, the, the culture of celebrity killed John and, and he was, a you know, an effed up, uh, junkie. And, um, and they felt that it didn't capture the, the full, um, the full scope of the man, certainly. He had lifelong battle with addiction, and um, certainly uh, he did. He he the demands of being uh, the the you know what, perhaps the most famous entertainer on the planet, which he was in at 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 when he was only thirty years old, were uh, were overwhelming for him. But but there was so much more, and and I thought I wanted to make a movie not about his death and the circumstances that led to his death, which was such a tabloid event mm -hmm. in its time, mm -hmm. but to take, make us tell the story of his life and his yeah. work and who he was and not what it was it like for John Belushi to die, but what was it like for John Belushi to live? Uh, the problem was that, um, that after the Woodward book uh, came out, the family kind of uh, just said, you know what, but we, we won't do that anymore. So they locked up the archive and it lived in Judy's basement in Martha's Vineyard. Everybody got on with their life. Judy was in a, uh, in a marriage and, and it was, it was, it was over. Uh, they weren't, they weren't going to grant anybody permission. Uh, I made a film. I produced a film uh, called listen to me, Marlin with a, with a brilliant, documentary producing legend, John Batsik, a dear friend of mine. And the two of us uh, had a great experience. It was the first film we made together, though we had spent many years talking about making films together. And, um, and when, when it was coming to a close, uh, we had lunch one day and said, well, now what, are, what should we do next? And I said, well, I think I, think I want to direct the next thing I do. And, 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 uh, and he said, well, what do you think of... Um, of, of John Belushi. And I explained to him that Belushi had been a, a, a an incredibly important figure during when I was, you know, a, a, a teenager. He, I, I subscribed to the National Lampoon. I listened to the radio hour. I, 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 you know, John was a very important figure to me, somebody who, whose uh, life story mattered a lot to me. So I was very intrigued and interested. And he explained to me that for a decade, he had been in pursuit of the rights to make the film from Judy Belushi. And uh, uh, you may not know John, but he's a John Batsik, but he's a, he's an extremely charming man. He's a very persuasive man. And the fact that he had not broken through with Judy was, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, but that he had developed a friendship with her is not a typical of, of what a, what a engaging great guy he is. And he said, you know what? I think the time might be right. And if I tell Judy that you want to direct it um, and we show her the Brando film, I think maybe we stand a chance. And in, in, in fact, his instinct was correct. She granted us the permission to do it. And she invited us up to, uh, to Martha's Vineyard to spend some time with her. Well, 
in the period of time right before we went to the vineyard, uh, I did a few kind of uh, pre-interviews on the phone with people who had been part of John's life. I had lunch with one person. I did two phone interviews. And, um, and I, 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 I was not happy because the, I, everybody was telling me what felt like the stories they tell when they talk about John Belushi, that guy who they knew when they were young about 40 years ago. There was, there was a, it was like it was lost in the foggy haze of memory. There was no immediacy to it. There was no rawness to it. I wasn't capturing, I wasn't hearing the essence of John. I was hearing, hey, I've got a good John Belushi story. And I, it felt like they had told the story 70 other times and I'm sure they had. And that's not their fault. Time is funny that way, you know, things recede. Memory specificity recedes. You, you, you latch onto the stories you like to tell. And, um, and, and the essence of the story gets further and further away. So I was in a, I was a little bit, um, you know, perplexed when we went to the vineyard and, um, and what do you know, we, we had a wonderful time with Judy. We were there four or five days. We, she and I would take long walks and talk about her life and her life with John and the foundation of the film was really established. But it was when we were looking through the archive and we saw these boxes of tapes. And I said to her, what's all that? And she said, well, we don't talk a lot about it, but in the wake of the, of the Woodward book, we were so frustrated. I determined to, uh, to put together an oral history of John's life. And I did a bunch of interviews and our friend Tanner Colby did a bunch of interviews and other people did a bunch of interviews and that's what's in that box. And I was like, what? And they were audio tapes and they weren't great quality, but they captured the essence of the man. They were the very thing I was looking for. And, um, and that along with John's letters, which you know are prominently featured in the film in which the brilliant uh, Bill Hader performs uh, so brilliantly, um, he also captures the essence of the man. Uh, we were able to tell John's story. I love the animation. How did that come up? I mean, that's just well, genius. that's part of thank you. Thank you. Well, that's um, that's uh, that's part of it. First of all, it's Robert Valley, the great, you know, we call him the outlaw animator because for some reason he's he's not allowed in the United States, he's Canadian. I, th I, 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 I suspect it's a parking violation, but um. <laughs> But the legend grows uh, and he's and he's an Oscar nominee and he's brilliant. And I've always been a huge fan of his work. And um, and that comes from a similar place. You know, John was a, a a private man. He was a private man in a time when everybody didn't have a camera in their pocket. And 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 he lived at a time where uh, celebrity culture was just emerging. You know, uh, Saturday Night Live starts 1975. People Magazine starts 1974. We didn't always have this kind of dump truck of a culture. You know, there was a time. There was a time where artists were allowed to live their lives and, and uh, uh, they didn't have people, you know, whatever. I don't have to get on a soapbox here. But we, we and, and, and that time was transitioning to this time around the time of John Belushi. Well, he was private and he kept his privacy because he felt like, you know, that's none of your business. Talk to me about my work if you want. I'm delighted to talk about my work, but he, so we didn't have a lot of that more personal material and that created an opportunity. And, and I, it was a riddle. 
Um, but the riddle for me was solved, uh, not only as soon as I saw uh, Robert's work, but more importantly, I mean, Robert's uh, uh, ideas for this film, but more specifically, as soon as I saw the little boy he drew um, when John was, was four or five years old, walking around the neighborhood, knocking on neighbors' doors and performing for them in his living room, which is one of the great John Belushi stories from the time he was four or five years old. He'd walk around the neighborhood, knock on the neighbors' doors, and if they opened up, he'd do a show in their living room for them. Well, the little boy that, that, that Robert drew was so essential, John, that it occurred to me that little boy should appear throughout the film. And that's a big part in addition to Robert's great talent um, and his connection to the material. That's a big part of what makes the animation, I think, so, so emotional, so powerful. Before we go, a philosophical question I have for you about documentaries in general. Yeah. We were talking early on about capturing truth, final cut with your subject, making that clear and, and trust. With the explosion of documentaries that has gone on, I mean, there are probably more documentaries being produced now, thanks to streaming and all these portals, which can find them, than there ever was. Is the, is the nonfiction genre becoming a little, not watered down, I'm, I'm wondering about the trust principles. Like when we see a documentary, I think generally we think unbiased, but there are some out there that have an angle and tell one side. Do you, I'm just wondering if, if, if you, you have a reaction to all, has, has the, has the abundance of documentaries somehow watered down the principles of truth telling? I think that's what I'm asking. It's, it's a great question. It's, 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 um, I say this with love in my heart. It's not a great question for the end of an interview. It's a great question for the beginning of an interview. And I encourage you to get me together with two or three of my colleagues because we all will have a lot to say about it. But there's a, it, but it's very, because it's a very complex question. So like anything in the media, you have to be, you have to have uh, uh, um, media literacy. Um, it's not watering it down for those of us who were, you know, responsible filmmakers and storytellers. Um, and, and it's not true that documentaries are unbiased. There are, um, there, there are you know, it, it, there's a rich tradition of agitprop documentary filmmaking and it goes back very far. Now the tradition I work in, which is cinema verite, is observational filmmaking. And it's, we've talked a lot in this interview about the approach and the principles and what the results are. And it's driven by cinematic principles as much as anything. The fundamental idea was if, if Robert Redford can be a movie star and Warren Beatty can be a movie star, why can't Mick Jagger or John F. Kennedy living their lives be movie stars? They certainly have, they, they leap off the screen. Why can't a Bible salesman? Why can't the cousins of the first lady of the United States living their eccentric life out on Long Island be, be uh, movie stars? They certainly can if 
the filmmakers are, are Alan David Maisel's, if the filmmakers are D.A. Pennebaker, you know, why can't George Stephanopoulos and, and James Carville running a presidential campaign be movie stars? Well, let me tell you, they can, because I, I know, because I produced a film about them that ran for six months in movie theaters and people, you know, and, and, and now the, the two of them are, are household names. Uh, uh, because of their their brilliance and their work, but this was the beginning uh, of their of them becoming public figures. So um, uh, there's much more to it. Now there's also the advent of of reality TV, which is manipulated and contrived, and and and, and where the where the subjects work for the filmmakers. That's a whole other thing. You talk about streaming, but there are more elements than just stre streaming. Is a huge part of the of of why documentary is a thriving business now because finally the the um the the fact that audiences want to watch great documentaries uh, and their access to great documentaries meet up in a marketplace that can value those dark documentaries because i mean listen we uh, i'm told that the billy eilish film increased subscribers to Apple TV Plus by a third. Well, that's pretty valuable to them. Now, thank God bless them. They they paid for it. Everybody, you know, they they recognized its value in the marketplace. It's all that. So that's good. But there are other factors involved. There's also this. Look at this. This this thing is a better camera. It's my telephone. It's a better. That's my newborn. It's a better. Uh, it's a better uh, camera than the camera we made the war room on. You know, it's a better or, or better that 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 I made uh, the September issue on with, to, to compare video to video. The war room was shot in film, but this is this is a higher quality camera than that sixty five thousand dollar camera plus. You have to also spend money on the lens that we made the September issue on, and you've got one. You've got one, and I've got one, and your friend has one. Everybody's got one, and people are filming. So that has a lot to do. That we're entering a new era of of archival and access to archival. This is a very complex, very important question. I'm grateful that you asked it because I love clearly. I love talking about it. But I don't think. I mean, my peers are doing extraordinary work. We we are in a we you know. There's a lot of talk about the golden age of documentary and that it's happening now. A lot of that is because there's support for it. And you have these brilliant artists who are out there, my, my colleagues and peers who are out there making films and often making a film a year, sometimes two films a year. You know, look, you're pointing out I had three this year. It's, it's been, it's a, it's a great time. It's a thrilling time. And um, I think with the slightest amount of, of, of media literacy where you can tell the, you know, you can see if a film is being honest. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a time in, in my estimation to, to celebrate what's happening in documentary. RJ Cutler, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's so fun to chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.